Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. <laughs> How are you all? Good morning still. Uh, thanks so much for showing up. So good to have you in church. A uh, bunch of new faces. Hello, hello. My name is Andre, and uh, thanks so much for uh, coming to our church. And I would love to uh, meet you in person. Uh, and so if uh, you have the time, I encourage you to join us for the Inside the City lunch later on. Now, you know, in a lot of these times, you know, we, we feel a bit like encumbered, you know. Let me just assure you, we are very friendly, kind, hospitable people who would love to shake your hand in better times and just host you really well. And so please just take my word for it and just show up for uh, the meeting later. No lunch, but I we have cold brew. We have cold brew because we are fancy with our coffee here. Coffee doesn't come from a sock. It comes from a metal thing which you pull from what I'm told. Uh, but all that to say, looking forward to seeing you later. Uh, you'd like some free coffee and just to get to know us. Uh, as Christine said, we have a prayer charge coming along uh, with our big shots and prayer scene. Uh, I'm, I'm going to include that in the email to them. Thanks so much for being a big shot and prayer scene. Uh, but one of the things I love about prayer is that you don't need to be super eloquent. You don't need to know the Bible super well. You don't need to be the most dynamic person in order to pray. There's this invitation in Scripture for all of us to participate in prayer. Uh, now, whenever I play soccer, there's a community of people that play soccer in our church. And every now and then, uh, they will invite me, uh, you know, when they feel uh, charitable. They invite me. And usually when I play them, they, they look at me and say, uh, Oh, Andre, um, and they're doing this in light of my lack of goal-scoring ability and my big frame, I'm told. So they're like, Andre, play defense. Use your body, Andre. Use your body. Use your body. That's what they tell me often. Use your body, Andre. Play defense. Now, unlike me playing soccer, in the kingdom of God, all of us can play offense. All of us are invited to pray. So it's a good plug there. <laughs> Please, uh, let me play offense every now and then. I want to score goals and celebrate. You don't want to use my body, I use my legs and skills. Uh, <laughs> uh, all this to say, uh, so good to have you with us. Now, uh, if you recently joined our church or uh, this is your first time here, typically, you know, in our church, uh, as we begin the new year, uh, we'll take the first few sermons of the year to just, uh, you know, do it off series and off like a particular kind of, uh, uh, you know, campaign, if you will, uh, and we'll just take the first two messages of the year to just you know, really chart a course and a trajectory for church uh, in the new year. Uh, if you were here last week, we talked about uh, this need of humility, how uh, the Bible calls us to be poor in spirit such that we may inherit the kingdom of God. There's this trait of humility that is not so talked about. It's not the most appealing of virtues, but the Bible says that it is the humble that we inherit the kingdom of God. God shows his favor upon those who are humble. And uh, today, you know, I have a message for us, and it's kind of a companion message to what I talked about uh, last week. And so this is what we're going to do. Uh, if you join us, you know, love to just, you know, get you, you know, on board with uh, whatever's happening. But just for context, this is really about uh, our church, our family, and uh, where we see our community going in this new year. Now, when I first got saved as a young boy, I was about 15, turning 16 years old when I first got saved. I remember uh, the first faith community that I was part of was a very vibrant dynamic community that was very open to the supernatural, to the things of the Spirit. We saw so many wonderful things uh, in that community. 
And I remember my first time attending a cell group. It was this in the classroom, just packed full of young people. I was invited there by a friend, you know, a, a fellow uh, person in my school, and I started to meet all these nice, welcoming, friendly Christian people. So they're welcoming me, and I remember cell group started, we played some games, we did some icebreakers, and then we did some singing. I was like, okay, this is quite fun, you're playing games, we're singing, and all the songs seem very appealing, and then all of a sudden, a person got up to the front and said, now everybody, pray in tongues, and all of a sudden, pandemonium, people started going, hurr, hurr, hurr. I was like, what is happening? There's this like, nice guy who brought me here, he's so nice, gentle, docile, quiet, and now all of a sudden, he's like, doing this thing, and like, what happened to all these nice people that I was just playing icebreakers with? What on earth is happening? Now, I don't know how many of you have had a similar experience, but at a moment, I felt, no, just a mixed bag of feelings. Fear, definitely. Confusion. Worried. You know, I was like, what is happening to you? Do we need to call a doctor, right? And so, you know, it was just this mixed feeling, but at the same time, it piqued a kind of curiosity in me for, you know, what was happening to them why is, why is it not happening to me? You know, whatever it's kind of like going on in their bodies, they're experiencing, I want the same thing you know, for my own life. I want to feel what they're feeling. And this curiosity turned into a longing, and it in turn turned into a pursuit. I grew zealous, I grew you know, hungry, and I longed for God's reality, His kingdom, the stuff that I read about in Scripture, to be stuff that I experience in my own life. Now, one of um, the early pursuits in my life uh, in relation to this thing of wanting the reality of God, the supernatural, was, you know, I really wanted a word from the Lord. I read about this word of the Lord thing a lot in the Bible, right? God will give a word, and then suddenly everything will change. They know what they wanted to do in life. Circumstances will turn around, and all of a sudden, everything is beautiful and nice. And I wanted a word from the Lord. And I knew so many people in that community who had prophetic words, who had words from prophets, words that they heard from God, and it so changed their life. And I was like, I don't have one. I want a word from the Lord. And it was right around the time I chanced upon this website. Now, some of you are my familiar story. Uh, I chanced upon this website, and it was a website of a prophet. And the website had this landing page, and it was just a very simple thing. I want to give you a word of the Lord, word from the Lord. And so all you had to do was to send the prophet 20 US dollars, fill in this form, you include your email and your name, and then the prophet will give you a word. And I was like, this is a pretty good deal, right? 20 US dollars for a life-changing word that would alter the course of history and change the entire trajectory of my life. Why not? 20 US dollars, you know, I, like, I don't have to wear a yellow shirt, put on a sun hat, and cross my fingers and hope the prophet calls me out. 20 bucks, not bad, pretty good deal, right? Agreed? No, okay, you don't, because you are way more spiritual than I am. Why am I doing this pastoring thing in the first place? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I sent in the 20 US dollars. I was like 18 years old then, didn't have much money. Sent in 20 US dollars, put my name, Andre Tan, my email address, and then I waited with earnest expectation for a word from the Lord. And the prophet got back to me in a very expedient way. The next day I got a word ready. It was an email, I still have it today, with a sound clip that said, word for Andre.mp3. And so I clicked onto the sound clip with earnest expectation for this life-changing word. And the word begins like this. My dear sister. 
you are a maid servant for the Lord. You are a dedicated wife to your husband. You are a Proverbs 31 woman. And then uh, it goes on to say that, like, I see a cooking ministry in your life. You will bless multitudes with cooking as you serve your husband faithfully, as you raise your children diligently. That's the first, and first prophetic word I've ever received in my life. Uh, shape the rest I will receive later on. Now, all this to say, the, the word, much of the word is still not fulfilled. I don't plan on fulfilling some of those words. Uh, cooking ministry, not, not right, quite yet there, but people for Christmas often joke by giving me cooking books. So like, Andre, remember your word about cooking ministry. Yeah. Now, <laughs> uh, it's a funny, it's a curious story, but why did I bring up this like, you know, funny story? I remember, you know, where I was at as a young man really well uh, in that time. You know, I was 18, I had just come to the Lord a few years ago. I was zealous. I was hungry for God, His reality, His Word. And at a point of time, I would have exhausted any opportunity just so I could experience God. Any opportunity just so I could hear God. I'll be in conferences, I'll be in meetings, I will come to multiple services, I'll be up to the front in the altar call. I was hungry, I was zealous for God. And I was reflecting on the end of the year and just thinking back on several experiences I've had, you know, where I've met the power, the glory, the splendor of God. It's left me with this longing and desire for that to be the case in my life once again. I remember there was a season in my life, it was over a few weeks, where I was so awakened to, no, there was just the presence of God, I could feel Him so intensely. And whenever someone would come up to me and the name Jesus would mention, it would leave me in tears. It would be, almost became a running joke. People would come up to me and go, Jesus, just to see me cry, because I don't cry often. Um, but I remember being so aware of God's presence. Now, I'm sure many of us have had similar experiences in life where we you know, touch something of God's presence. And we know it's so real and so near. And we often kind of reminisce of stories like that, don't we? And go, oh man, remember those days where God's glory and power came and my life was changed forevermore? Yeah, good old days, good old days. And it's very easy for us to dismiss some of these experiences as, you know, relics of the past that we touch on occasion, that we bring up as a kind of coffee table conversation every now and then. But what if instead of this missing it as a relic of the past, something that isn't so much possible today, if it happens, it happens. What if these stories, these experiences are meant to stoke something within us, a hunger, a longing, a desire for God? I think of that cry from the prophet Habakkuk when he says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known in wrath, remember, mercy. And I pray that this is the cry of our community, that indeed we would cry and long for God's power, glory, and wonder to be made manifest in our lives and in our world. You know, for the second message of this new year, I'll be speaking to us on the subject of hunger, specifically spiritual hunger, and I titled my message, A Community Marked by Hunger. And this is the cry of my heart for our church, that our church will be marked with a cry, a deep, visceral cry for more of God, spiritual hunger. As always, I'll begin with reading a couple of passages of scripture as we look, in the Lord, look, look to the Lord in prayer. Starting off with Hosea chapter 10, 
says this in God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fellow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Reading from Matthew chapter 5, this is from the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, indeed, as we've just sung, great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. God, your word says when we were faithless, you remain faithful. God, your faithfulness is manifested in our lives. Your faithfulness is manifested when your people come and sing and praise. You inhabit, you inhabit this place, oh God. When we sing, we proclaim your name, you come. Not just as a theoretical concept or someone that we talked about as a distant figure from the past. You are here in this room right now. We feel you, we sense you near and close to us. God, we thank you for your faithfulness that's even made manifest through the words of Scripture. How you give us a glimpse on how this world ought to be lived in. Your word says, hunger, thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. God, we look upon the promise of Scripture this day with expectant hearts, knowing that when we live accordance to your way, we will experience the fruit, the abundance of your kingdom. So God, we ask even as we explore your words this day, Speak to us, lead us in this time. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Now, I just want to get this out of the way. Um, you know, I'm talking about spiritual hunger and community marked by hunger, hunger and thirst for the things of God. Uh, this message is going to lead us to fasting at some point. You know, usually, you know, sometimes when I listen to messages, I'm like, wow, good point, good point, good point. And then, ah, fasting, wow, you know, there's no warning, right? And so I'm going to put it out there. And so please don't be shocked and uh, taken aback uh, by this. But I think uh, it is something that we want to recapture as a vision for our lives. Now, uh, it's been almost two and a half years since I moved into my uh, HDB flat in Simei. Now, Simei is the promised land filled with greenery and infant cares and kick scooters. It's, uh, it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful land. We saw like 14 houses before we landed on an HDB in Simei. Now, uh, I remember uh, I had a really godly property agent, you know, who would uh, bring me the houses. And when we chanced upon this HDB, uh, there were multiple offers already on the table. And remember he said to me, in a non-kind of compelling way, or non like, he, was, he wasn't trying to like, you know, sucker me into... Uh, locking it down, he asked me a simple question. It's like, Andre, do you feel the peace of God in this place? And I was like, uh, I, I think so. And he's like, okay, then if, if you feel convicted about this, maybe you should put an offer down. And I was like, okay. So I put an offer down after seeing the, the house a couple of times. And then I was like, yes, you know, I'm a, I'm a house owner. Biggest purchase in my life. And I remember getting the keys on November 11th, my anniversary, and opening the doors to this new dwelling that we have. You know, I had all this vision for what I wanted it to be. You know, I wanted to make beautiful memories my wife. I wanted to raise my one, maybe plus one, you know, in light of these, these, these challenges that we're facing, kids, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, just making memories and beautifying and hosting a lot of people. It was just full of dream and desire, right? And so I opened up the house, and now this house has been cleared out. It's the emptiest furniture. I looked at this shelf of a house, and I'm like, oh, wow. I don't really like it that much. 
and I just put down all my money on this house. I looked at the ceiling, I was like, oh my gosh, you're so low. If I put a ceiling fan, my hand would be chopped off. You know, I looked at, I looked at the floor, it's cracked up. I looked at this, it was falling apart. I tried to open the windows, the handle fell out. I was like, what did we just buy? What did we just purchase? And so I looked over to my wife, Amy, and I said, we have to sell this thing. We have to, we just have to. I have no vision. We have to just sell this thing. And then Amy was like, okay, calm down. But you know, she was like, we have no money. <laughs> what, what are we gonna do? Then I was like, okay, so we, we, we come down and okay, let's try like, you know, maybe make sense of it and, and maybe, you know, come down here. And so we decided to go over for a bite uh, at the mall nearby. And the mall uh, was uh, East Point. Now East Point, if you're unfamiliar, is a mall in the East, hence East Point. <laughs> Profound. <laughs> East Point, and so we, we, we moseyed on to East Point just to like grab a bite. Now East Point, back in the day when I was schooling, all I remember East Point was that it was filled with shops selling imitation converse and pet shops. There was like nothing there. It was just like very dingy and like sketchy. And I walked into this East Point and I was like, wow, something profound has happened here. The whole mall was reformed. It was like, wow, you know, it looks so great. It looks so beautiful. There was a McDonald's. We can imagine in Simei, there'll be a McDonald's. I was like, wow, there's a McDonald's. And this vision of like, I can eat here with my kids. Sunday morning breakfast. Uh, and, and I walked down and I was like, wow, Daiso. Wow, that's my favorite curry rice. And then I walked and I walked and I walked further in. And lo and behold, I chanced upon the promise. Eng's wonton me. Eng's wonton me. Now, some of you may differ from me. You may like the, the wonton mee, like very sweet, ketchup-y, you know, kind of ones that children like. I like eggs, wonton mee, spicy, like so spicy you regret it the next day, kind of wonton mee. And as I was slurping on my wonton mee, I looked at my wife and said, we can live here now. <laughs> this is the promise, we can live here now. Now, isn't it funny, the kind of bearing that food has on our lives? Right, how, you know, even, you know, when we encounter someone who is going through a hard time, we're like, let me buy you some food. Or when we want to have a difficult conversation with someone, it's like, let's do it over a meal. Right? Our lives are really driven by appetites. They're driven, they're directed by appetites. But we also know that living in our world today, it's not just our appetite for food that drives and directs our lives. There are many appetites in our world, in our culture. There's a whole cornucopia of appetites that seek to steer our lives in a multitude of directions. There's sexual appetite, this longing for gratification. There's this appetite for power, for prestige, for influence, to dominate, to rule, to seem like I'm winning in life. There's an appetite for uh, the sensational, to want the next best experience, to constantly feel that, that, that euphoria, that, that dopamine hit we want. That. There are multitude, multitude of appetites in our lives that tries to steer us, our culture puts so much in front of us with the false promises that this will lead to satisfaction, to flourishing, to contentment, only to find ourselves empty on the other side. And the claims of scripture that we just read in Matthew chapter five says this, that just as the human body needs food and water, so does the people of God living in the kingdom of God need righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It was St. Augustine who once said this, that thou madest us for thyself, speaking of God, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. Restlessness and longing, this, 
inconsolable longing that, that leads to searching and pursuit is the default condition of the human heart. Now, as we look at that text, right, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's very easy to just dismiss it as a kind of pity saying or something that so it's, it's kind of good to know and it doesn't really sound so strong and you know, does it really have any implications in my life? What does it actually mean? It do us good to do a deep study on the words that Jesus uses in this text. First off, the Greek word that he used to describe hunger is this word paneo. And it actually was the same word used to describe the hunger that Jesus experienced as he concluded 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Jesus at this point had kind of pushed off the enemy, he had fasted for 40 days, and then scripture said Jesus was hungry. Now, often when I read the text, I'm like, that is an understatement. 40 days of fasting, fending off the devil, you know, establish my kingdom, I am like, I can eat a stable of horses, kind of hungry. You know, I've heard, yeah, anyway. That was the kind of hungry Jesus was intensely, deeply hungry. It describes this strong hunger for food, almost to the point of starvation. Hear the intensity in that language. The next key Greek word that Jesus uses for the word thirst is the word dipsao, and it is also describes a strong desire for water. It is the same word used to describe uh, Jesus's, Jesus crying out on the cross after being beaten, whipped, hanging on the cross for hours upon hours, experiencing that kind of suffocation. He cries towards the end of the ordeal, I thirst. And that's the same word used in that, in that occurrence. Jesus at this point was parched, you know, he was longing, crying for water. That kind of thirst is the word that Jesus uses in this text. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Notice the intensity in that language. It's not just a surface kind of hunger and thirst. It's not just like, I will sing about it kind of hunger and thirst. No, it was deep, it was visceral. It, was, it produced like an all-consuming passion. If you're a truly starving and thirsty person, you'll be possessed by just one desire, getting that need met. That was the kind of language that Jesus used. And the last most important word that, Greek, that Jesus used uh, was the word filled. And it is the word uh, trotazo in Greek. And it's used to describe, uh, you know, when you take an animal and you feed an animal in order to fatten that animal to the point that the animal cannot stomach anything, right? You feed one more grape, the animal will explode. That kind of filled to the brim. That is the kind of language that Jesus uses. He says, bless are those who hunger and thirst intensely for righteousness, for they will be filled to the brim. This is the language that Jesus uses. It's a paradoxical kingdom. In the kingdom, you get hungry by eating. In the natural, you get hungry by not eating. But in the kingdom, you get hungry by feasting, by longing, by pining for God's righteousness. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes says this, that God has put eternity in our hearts. We have this inconsolable longing in us, don't we? But the thing is that we often try to satisfy it with the things of the world, but the longing still remains. We have to understand that default temptation of men is not to default towards a kind of atheism, but to default towards idolatry, is to have God amongst many other gods in our life, many other people or things or, or, or vices to which we give our allegiance to, is to have God as just but one of the options. 
Jeremiah would say this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Many of you in this morning probably relate with what I've just said, with the text that we've just read. Your soul is hungry. Your heart is thirsty. You feel this insatiable longing in you for satisfaction. Everything seems better on the other side. The grass seems greener on the other side. Everywhere you turn, you're looking for satisfaction, for fulfillment. And the great tragedy is this, that even though this is the Spirit's beckoning toward you to come in deeper into Himself, you turn away again and again towards temporal, backfiring pleasures and find yourselves completely empty. We drink at broken cisterns. That's why the words of C.S. Lewis rings true today. He says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And this is the claim of scripture that true satisfaction, this abundant life, life in all its fullness, is found in hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. That word blessed, as I talked about last week, is the word makarios. It captures not just meanings of being blessed or happiness, but joy, delight, satisfaction, fulfillment, flourishing, the approval of God. All of this is captured, that semantic range is captured in that word blessed. And God says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who long for the things I long for. John Piper in his book on fasting, which we'll get to in a bit, says this, the greatest enemy for, of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. Now, I'm not saying apple pie is of the devil, but let's read on further. <laughs> it's not a banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video. This book was written some time ago. But the prime time dribble of trivility we drink in every night for all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love. It's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Doesn't this speak to the human condition to turn the good gifts that God gives us into our gods? And this can be very noble things. It can be putting you know, food on the table. It can be having a good career such that you can provide for, for your family. It can be health, wellness, and fitness. But hear me in saying this, folks, when we turn God's good gifts toward us, to, even though it came from God, we turn them into a kind of idol in our lives, we have defaulted and veered off course from the way God intends for us to live. Coming back to that phrase, bless are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is this righteousness that Jesus is talking about? And how does it really satisfy our soul's longing? Now, what comes to your mind when you think of the word righteous, right? How many of you, when asked, like, how's your day going, you go, righteous, bro, righteous, righteous. Maybe I should start doing that, righteous. Or like, hey, bro, what are you doing on Tuesday? Just hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. 
right? Nobody talks like that, right? The word righteous is very much detached from our everyday vernacular, from the way we really speak. And because of that, you know, many of us lack a comprehensive understanding of the righteousness of God. And so this grand vision that Jesus paints in Scripture is reduced to nothing but a Christian cliche. The righteousness of God. The word used here in Greek is the word dikaiosune, and it's this beautiful and compelling word because it has this range of meaning. It means to be right before God, to be in right standing before Him, and this could be reflective in character, in holiness, to embody godly traits, but it also has this meaning of things being made right in the world, to be right before God in our hearts, but also for God's will his way, his power, his glory to bring the world into order, for the chaos in our hearts to be brought into order, and for the chaos of the world to be brought into order. That is the word righteousness. It's this all encompassing word that means both righteousness in a personal way, but also justice. It is both private and it's public. And so often in the church, we kind of like, you know, fight between two categories. Like, I'm the social justice person. I'm like, all oh, after like taking care of the poor and needy. And then you have the other side, which like, I'm discipleship. I'm like, practice the way. I'm like, you know, read your Bible, sanctification. And we throw stones at one another as though one doesn't matter. But God say, is saying this holistic vision of righteousness is the way. Be concerned about your personal holiness, but also be concerned about the affairs of the world because God cares about the world. <clears throat> now, it's easy for us, you know, in light of all that we're hearing, to move past the implications of the words of Jesus. But if we were to consider the entire breath of scripture, the weightiness of God's call, commands, and convictions over us. We know that God calls us not just to an understanding of righteousness or a surface level kind of righteousness, but a deep righteousness that possesses one's soul. In our culture, we really have righteousness on display in the surface level, right? It could look like reposting a story or commenting on a post, or cancelling a person when everybody's cancelling a person. You can parade a kind of righteousness. But instead of, you know, in, in, in kind of like falling the way of our culture by parading righteousness such that we may score points in our culture and with people, God calls us to a kind of righteousness that comes out of a deep conviction for the things of God. That's the kind of righteousness that we are called to. Now, there's this book I'm working through that's called uh, Dynamics of a Spiritual Life, written by Richard Lovelace. And uh, Tim Keller, this great church planter that we all know, uh, talks about this book as the book that gives him all his source material for much of uh, what he does in ministry, and he buys this book for all church planters. So it's a great book. So if you don't want your life to be changed, uh, yeah, just don't read that book. Don't touch it because it's uh, potent. Uh, and Lovelace in his book uh, you know, talks about um, you know, this talks about why change in society and change that we try to bring about in our own lives are often thin, shallow, and cyclical. In some sense, you know, we want to change it at some point. We're like, yes, I want things to be different in my life. I want to live differently. And then the next moment, we completely revert back to the status quo. And one of the things he suggests for why that is so and why we see that in our world, in our lives today, is because we do not have a deep awareness of our need for the righteousness of God. And he goes on this book to describe uh, spiritual decline in the world and in our own lives when we lose sight of this pursuit of the righteousness of God. 
The first is this, that we'll experience loss, an internal spiritual loss. That's when we leave our first love, we forsake our priority of life with God, lukewarmness creeps into our heart, and we suffer a loss of intimacy with God. And then we'll experience a withdrawal of the Holy Spirit because there's no longer an environment of love, of hunger, of passion, of pursuit. The Holy Spirit withdraws His manifest presence. And then it gives way to an ascendance of the flesh, where there's an absence of the presence of God, there's an ascendancy of the flesh, which then leads to conformity out of the way of Jesus and conformity into the image of the world, which then gives the enemy strongholds to dominate the church and rob her of her power and witness. It's so subtle, right? It's so subtle. But when we begin to allow our longings, our desires, our pursuits to be shaped by worldly ambition, it begins this slippery slope towards spiritual decline. Most people don't end up having the devil dominate their lives you know, just by a single decision. It's a multitude of decisions, a host of decisions to prefer the way of the world, the pursuits of the world above God's call to righteousness. And it leads to a kind of spiritual decline. David Wells captures this idea really well. Where we lose sight of righteousness to God, theology becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness, holiness by wholeness, truth by feelings, ethics by feeling good about oneself. The world shrinks to the range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes, all that remain is the self. But folks, hear me in saying this. Instead of retreating and watching the world come apart at its seams, God has called us to pursue righteousness, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. You know, I read a piece of news uh, a couple of days ago and it just like bugged me. You know, it was just two celebrity couples, they got engaged and then to celebrate the union, they decided to drink each other's blood. Now I'm like, wow, that's all sorts of weird and disturbing and concerning. And it's very easy, you know, when we read upon news like that, don't search it now, no, please. <laughs> Pay attention, right? Uh, people are like, ooh, fact check. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, often we read stuff like that, but, but no, I mean, this is sensational news, but when you read about the brokenness of our world, we often try to numb our discontent or to distract ourselves out of discontent. When instead, God has called for us to allow that discontent to form a deep hunger, thirst, and longing for His righteousness, for His way, His will to be manifest on the earth. Now, so much, folks, is possible when the people of God begin to lay hold of that vision, when the people of God begin to hunger and thirst for the move of God, not just for their own lives, but in the world. You know, there's this uh, revival that happened in Ulster, Ireland. Revival is a time where God's manifest presence is made known to whole communities. People get saved, bodies are healed, and many are swept into the kingdom of God. We're talking about reform, not just in a spiritual sense, but social, economic reforms happen during a time of revival and outpouring of the Spirit. Now, uh, in this revival in, in Ireland, a uh, few pastors were interviewed before, uh, after the revival, and they were just sharing about the state of uh, the, the town before the revival happened. The first pastor said this, before the revival, our condition was deplorable. 
We're dead, cold, prayerless, worldly. Two times I tried a prayer meeting with elders but failed. The people did not only not want to pray, they were almost hostile towards prayer meetings. Now, I don't think we get this here, do we, right? You know, we are going to hold a bunch of prayer meetings. I don't experience any hostility, right? Participation. Okay, you all are not very affirming, but <laughs> we shall move on. Uh, they thought we were doing fine and that I was unnecessarily disturbing them. Second pastor said this, there seemed great coldness and deadness. I preached the gospel faithfully, earnestly, and plainly for 11 years, yet it was not known to me that a single individual had been converted. And the third pastor would say this, this is like super scathing. The congregation was altogether Laodicean. <laughs> the spiritual state was depressing and hopeless. Now it's in a time of great coldness and darkness that a man named James McCorkin, together with his friends, now these were all men who were untrained, they were not ministers, they were not pastors. They felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit to hold a prayer meeting. And so they began to hold this prayer meeting and it was said that so many rushed into that building to pray that the balcony looked like it was about to collapse and so they had to evacuate the entire building and they left that building into a field where it was pouring rain, it was cold, it was frigid, but people all gathered to pray. And McCookin would preach a sermon and multitudes of people would fall onto their knees in repentance. But what followed after that was super remarkable because what followed that one prayer meeting that was ran by a lay person, it, it, it eventually birthed a hundred other prayer gatherings all across the city, town, village, in barns, in workplaces, in schools, in homes, all ran by non-pastoral individuals. It was not a church-sanctioned, organized event. These were all people who felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to pray, to seek God. And it was said that within weeks, 10,000 were converted. Almost every street saw conversions. The most notorious sinners, drunks, were saved. There were large open-air meetings, about 25,000. One pastor would say this, for the last three weeks, it has been one continual Pentecost. One minister would say this, it was worth living 10,000 ages in the absolute obscurity and reproach to be permitted to engage in the glorious work of the last six months. The results were crimes dropped, there were was, was stories of judges who had to close their courtrooms because there were no cases to be tried. Bars and distilleries were empty. Uh, Wales saw a tenth of the population come to Christ. Now, why did I bring all this up? Because when we live in a time of spiritual drought, we have to remind ourselves that there's such a thing as rain. When we live in a time where, you know, just coming to church and hearing good sermon and listening a song and leaving, we have to remind ourselves that this is not the fullness of the kingdom of God. This is not the fullness of God's righteousness manifest on the earth. There is such a thing as rain. There is such a thing as an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that touches not just individual lives, but whole communities where people are swept into God's kingdom. This is what we are to long for, to hunger and thirst. In a climate like this, when we see evil on the rise, apathy on the rise, many are leaving the churches, defaulting towards self-indulgent contendencies, we are to cry and long for the Spirit of God to be made manifest in our world once again. Are you with me, folks? Now, our problem isn't so much that we do not believe that this is possible. Our problem is that for many of us, we reduce faith into a category to which we can just manage it as a part of our lives and not the whole. Faith is just a thing I do on a particular day, on a weekend but it's not all-consuming. But God has called us to hunger, to thirst, to be possessed 
but his passion and desire for his righteousness. Now, it's in light of all this that I can't think of a better spiritual practice to stoke the fires of hunger in your life, to posture yourself towards thirsting after things of God, than the spiritual discipline of fasting. I just got there, folks, fasting. Now, I'll just like to say this. There has been not a aspect of my theology that has been repeatedly and consistently changed in fasting. I've changed my stance on fasting many times in my life. Most of the time, midway during the fast. So I fast and they're like, oh, I'm very hungry. I want a Big Mac now. Maybe fasting is just legalism. Maybe in the new covenant, it's all grace. I think no need. I think no need. <laughs> now, you may not be able to tell, but I've had a long history of fasting. You may, be, you may judge me for my physique and be like, this guy looks like he hasn't fasted a day. I'd like to assure you that I have fasted many a day in my life. Uh, I've been a hardcore faster. I fasted every time I had to preach a sermon. I've been a critique of fasting. I've made fun of people and said, like, you legalistic, pharisaic fool, why are you fasting? Uh, I've also been a casual faster. You know, like sometimes you miss your lunch and then be like, oh, I missed my lunch. I'm going to turn it into a fast. So, Jesus, like what I did two hours ago that I had no cognitive kind of like decision on, that was for you. I've done that. All of you are judging me now. All this to say, right, after years of like kind of oscillating back and forth, I can't think of a better spiritual practice that gives you clarity of purpose, hunger, desire, passion, than the spiritual act of fasting. John Piper would say this, uh, once again from his book on fasting, he says this, the weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. Perhaps then the denial of our stomach's appetite for food might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. John Darby would say this, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in God's heart toward me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed on the husks with the pigs. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. And so the question I want to land on uh, as we bring this thing to a landing shortly, we know planes kind of take 30 minutes to land sometimes, so please do not get too enthusiastic with my landing. But the question is this, how do we grow in deep, authentic, father-turning kind of hunger? And so that, I would like to bring us through that, that passage I read earlier from Hosea 10. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fellow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till it comes and rains righteousness on you. Hosea is this story of Israel. It's, it's a kind of parable that, that marries this parable of Israel's unfaithfulness towards God and God's continued faithfulness towards Israel. And this, uh, at this point of, of Hosea's story, the, the, the nation was in decline, spiritual decline, utter kind of apathy, and they were in the midst of facing a foreign threat that would come and utterly destroy them. And it's in that time Hosea calls them to do this to essentially three movements, to break, to sow, and to seek. To break, to sow, and to seek. And if we can give you spiritual direction for your life this year, is to chart a course with these three movements in life. To break, to sow, to seek. What can I break up? What can I sow as a spiritual seed? And how can I seek God in a deeper way 
in this new year. I think fasting is a great way to break. That word there is to break up the fallow ground. And most of us are not farmers, so we have no clue what fallow ground is. Does fallow ground mean the ground next to me? My fallow ground? No, it does not mean that. The word fallow ground in an agrarian term is ground that is untapped potential. There's weeds on it, it's hardened up, seeds can't sow there, it's not fertile any longer. And the farmer would have to go through the arduous process of making that ground fertile again. And so the call here to all of us is that there is more. There is more. There is more. Look at your soul as a kind of territory. What is dormant? What is unfertile? And how can you break it up such that you may experience fruit once again? And fasting is a great way to break up spiritual complacency. That's why we fast. The next call is this, is for us to sow. And the phrase says to sow righteousness for yourselves. And fasting is a fantastic way to sow repentance. To sow repentance. In Leviticus, we read that the people of God were told to fast as a means of sincere repentance, to experience that kind of hunger, that kind of need and want, as a way of tutoring their hearts on the depth on the gravity of their sin. So let the, that kind of pain and struggle and angst sit in your soul such that you may understand the gravity of a sin. And before we dismiss that as some kind of archaic, pharisaic kind of practice, consider what we have today. What do you do when you sin or when you, trans, when you, you know, go against the will of God, when you participate in vice indulgence? You go, God, I feel so bad. Help me. Amen. And then you move on. But what if we were to take fasting, employ fasting as a means of sowing repentance, of feeling the weight of our sin, of repenting rightly and well? Now, in agrarian kind of culture and term, that word sowing has a kind of meaning to it, right? In essence, what you sow, you will reap. And so it's safe to say that what we're experiencing in our lives today is a result of what we've sown in a previous time. And what we're experiencing now as a generation is what a kind of previous generation has sown into this generation. We sow in one season, we reap in another. I'd like to humbly submit to you this, that we have sown self-reliance and we are reaping exhaustion. We have sown a kind of celebritism in the church and we're reaping fans, not disciples. We have sown entertainment and we're reaping consumers. We have sown technique and we're reaping pragmatism. We have sown doubt and cynicism and we're reaping decline. The Barner Report will say that 64% of people raised in faith will end up leaving it. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that if you want to experience a different fruit, then you have to sow a different seed. Or else we're just managing the decline here. And things kind of go on the same way the status quo, and this is what we're going to anticipate and expect in the time to come. But what if we begin to sow a different seed from this day? Instead of apathy, and a carelessness about the world, about the things of God. We will sow repentance even now. And the last call from Hosea is this, to seek. To seek, and specifically, it's a time to seek the Lord. Fasting is a great way to intensify that kind of seeking. There's something in the economy of God that can only be accessed through fasting. There are some things that we only experience as a kind of breakthrough only through fasting. Now, these are really strong words. You know who said it? Jesus did. 
in that story where Jesus and his disciples encountered a, demon, a child with demons, his disciples couldn't cast out the demons. And Jesus would say, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Seems like when you put prayer and fasting together, they kind of amplify one another. Scott McKnight, a theologian, would say that fasting is praying with your body. It's having your body, your physical being aligned with your spiritual prayers. Now, all through scripture history, whenever the people of God in a moment of need, desperation for want of breakthrough, they would fast and pray. Moses' 40-day fast uh, led to the revelation of the Ten Commandments. Hannah fasted and God released a prophet who would change the destiny of a nation. Esther called for a fast and her people were delivered and the enemies destroyed. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness and overcame temptations that held humanity in bondage. Now there are times both ancient, modern, personal and national where we will need a miracle, where the circumstance or the means of overcoming it is far beyond our own ability. Now what if in a moment like that, instead of defaulting towards hopelessness or just complaining or protesting, we will get on our faces to fast? What kind of breakthrough will we see? I'd like to put it to you folks that our hunger for God must be stronger than our hunger for food. Our culture of fasting must be stronger than our culture of gluttony. Now, thanks so much for tracking along with me. You might think, okay, how do I begin on fasting? I'm not going to get on the nuts and bolts, the steps here. All that uh, is actually available on our app. We uh, did a series called Spiritual Practices, and you can look it up. Uh, there's a practice on fasting uh, in the notes, and you can find more information there. And uh, fun fact, we're actually turning our Spiritual Practices sermon series into a curriculum, so uh, do watch out for that. Now, as a way to begin, perhaps this week we can consider fasting. To begin that year, the new year, with a posture of hunger, of humility. You can explore fasting one meal or uh, the Lenten fast, which is, you know, uh, eating after dark. Now, I know fasting in this context just sounds downright unappealing, but fasting is not lost on our culture. I remember there was once I met a guy and he told me he was fasting. And I said, oh, intermittent, ketogenic, warrior diet, like, wh what kind of fast are you doing? And he said, no, Bible one. They're like, oh... Okay, and then I just felt right, downright spiritual and about to tender my resignation because <laughs> what kind of pastor I am. <laughs> fasting is not lost on our culture, right? But perhaps instead of fasting because of an obsession of body and health, we would fast because of an obsession of God. Perhaps that's possible. And this fasting once a week can turn into a rhythm of fasting where we consider incorporating fasting into our lifestyle, like fasting periodically. That's what the early church would do. And it then bursts into a fasted lifestyle. This is where we get, we get this idea from 2 Timothy 2. It's to say no to legitimate pleasures in order to say a bigger yes to God and His kingdom. Amen? Right, can I invite you to stand as we close? Are you all alive? Are you all hungry? Yeah, that's a trick question, right? Yeah, it's, I'm sorry for the trickery. Now, I've been inspired, uh, you know, in uh, recent months by the life of William Booth. I wonder how many of you know who William Booth is. He founded the Salvation Army. Uh, he was born in relative poverty, not well-educated, uh, by all accounts, not charismatic. Uh, some, some accounts say he was not handsome. I wonder why it had to do with anything. Uh, uh, and it almost seemed like the odds were stacked against him for achieving anything uh, remarkable in life. He was almost destined for a life of mediocrity. 
And he was once asked this question like, Booth, uh, how do you accomplish so much in your life? How do you do all these great, mighty works and exploits? And his reply just struck me and moved me. And it was said that he replied that I resolved that God would have all of William Booth there ever was. If you look back on his life, he actually wrote that prayer as a 15-year-old boy and it stuck all the way through the end of his life. God would have all there was of William Booth. He would have all of me. It was that hunger, that surrender, that givenness, that emptying of itself, giving off all his agency, will, and resource, that God filled him and gave him courage and boldness and vision and ended up doing mighty things for the glory of God. Booth emptied himself such that he may be filled. And this is what we posture to do in fasting. We empty ourselves to the point of one and need such that we may be filled with all the righteousness of God found in Christ Jesus. Fasting is a physical act, yes, but it has such great spiritual implications. Transforms us, shapes us, molds us. So this year, you know, we... How to ask this question, why are we hungering and thirsting for? Is hungering even a word? I don't think so. Why are we hungering and thirsting for this year? Matthew 7 says that when we seek God, we shall find Him. The question is, you know, what are we seeking after this year? What does seeking God look like in this year? How do I actually posture and pursue this? Because if you don't have vision for this, it just becomes a vain platitude, a saying that you ring up on occasion. But what does it actually mean to seek God? The Bible promises that when we seek God, we will find Him. What does finding God in 2022 look like? What does it mean to experience His righteousness, His power, His presence? What does it mean? You know, it was once said and asked, if the sum total of your prayers were answered today, would only your life be changed or would the world be changed? Most of us only have a vision for our own lives, what's within the boundaries of our own concern. But God says those who follow Him and follow in this way will capture His heart, His burden for the world, for people and pursue His righteousness, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of the world. So what does finding God look like in 2022? Does it go beyond your immediate concern? Does it touch the lives of people, our world this day? Perhaps, you know, we begin this year with that big seminal question. What are we hungry for? What are we thirsting for? Will it bring satisfaction? The scripture tells us that satisfaction is only found when we pursue the righteousness of God. So as a way of responding this, I invite you to close your eyes and lean into God even this moment. Big questions that we've just asked. How are we hungering? How are we thirsting? What are we pursuing? Have we gone drinking from broken cisterns? Is God calling us and beckoning us back to Him? Have we gone pursuing pleasures from the things of the world? God is calling us back to a wholehearted devotion to Him. To derive pleasure and joy from His presence from walking in His way. So as a way of responding, let's lift our hands before us and say, God, speak to us. We empty of ourselves even in this day. We ask that You will fill us. We want to grow in hunger and thirst for You. 
We know that we achieve this not by our own strength, but through your Spirit's help. So Holy Spirit, come upon us even now. Bring us in alignment. We want to start this year off right, pursuing you, your kingdom, and your righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all go back to worship together.